Hey there, folks. This is Dan Fagella here with the Tech Emergence Podcast, where we hone in on the intersection of technology and psychology. And today, we're bringing the podcast back to a topic that we have, we have not covered uh, as of late, at least specifically in quite some time, which is artificial intelligence. There's been a, a lot of hubbub with Elon Musk's statements and the statements of Hawking about sort of their trepidations around AI. And I thought it'd be useful to bring on an expert who has an understanding of sort of the origins of AI, the sort of the underpinnings of AI, and maybe even its direction. I have with me on the line Dr. John McCormick, professor of computer science at Dickinson. He's also author of Nine Algorithms That Changed the Future. John, how are you? I'm very well, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Of course, glad to have you here. And John, you know, I had, uh, I had originally seen you sort of through your your book there, Nine Algorithms That, Ch- Nine Algorithms that Changed the Future, um, and with, with a decent amount of focus on artificial intelligence there, um, give us a sense as, you know, most of the readers are interested in emerging tech. Not all of them will be specialists or working adamantly in AI. When for you, just for my own understanding, do you consider to sort of be the origins of AI in terms of algorithms and actual computer science? When did it arise and how did that even happen? Well, that is uh, a question that we could devote many hours of podcast to. <laughs> I bet we could. I bet in we this could. this interview, we will not do that. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, really, right from the start of computing devices, and this goes right back to Alan Turing and von Neumann during the Second World War, um, people realized that these things were not just going to be crunching numbers, but could actually solve other types of problems. And right from the start, um, people were interested in getting computers to do stuff like play chess and reason about uh, simple logical systems and so on, and really started pushing hard and... um, even as early as the 1950s, you know, people were talking about grand visions of having computers um, thinking like humans and solving, solving problems in a human-like way. That turned out to be vastly overambitious. Um, they quickly discovered that computers uh, could not be programmed to do things like this as easily as they originally thought. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there have been uh, a lot of strides in the last few decades and we're now at the point where computers do a lot of amazing things, and we actually just take it for granted. No, we we, we totally do. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly do. I'm I'm on uh, Skype with you right now. I have uh, very little, uh, particularly nitty gritty understanding of of the functions of of Skype or what's happening with with uh, within my computer. But it it sort of does its job for me. Um, certainly. You know, when it's when it's new for folks, I suppose it's it's new. But sort of being born into this world of computers being ubiquitous, it's it's certainly not for me. Um, so so for what what you're telling me here, John, is that essentially the origins of artificial intelligence we might say are almost as old as computing themselves. Uh, yeah, and well, I mean, it kind of depends what you, you mean, but that? in a way, even older. I mean, even going back to the 18th century. Um, people like Leibniz, who's one of the people who invented uh, calculus, uh, was also very interested in building machines that could mechanize the art of human reasoning. So, you know, it's they're sort of artificial intelligence and computers, and they overlap, but they, they also have um, been developed in parallel over, over, over the centuries. I mean, one thing that I, you, you mentioned Skype is something that you're using without necessarily understanding all the components of it. Most people wouldn't even regard Skype as having anything to do with artificial intelligence, mm, but mm, mm. that's part of the point. I mean, as soon as something becomes easily done by computers and we all just get used to it, it seems that that is not an intelligent function anymore. So the ability to record your voice and transmit it and stuff like that, which, you know, 
Um, decades ago, we would have thought that uh, only a human could perform functions like that. Um, now it's just trivial. You know, computers are doing that all the time. And there are, you know, a more common example of the same kind of thing would be chess playing, one of the classic AI challenges yes. that um, these days we sort of think, well, sure, computers can, can, can beat the best human players, but they're just crunching numbers and, you know, doing billions of computations per second and, you know, kind of outclassing <laughs> the human in this way that's kind of cheating. And we don't even really acknowledge that as, as genuine artificial intelligence anymore. So the bar moves every time computers and algorithms get better, uh, we move the bar as to what we consider to be genuine artificial intelligence. Yeah, and uh, Kurzweil talks about that as well, how um, as soon as artificial intelligence conquers some beachhead of previously only human neocortex-level capacity, such as the game of chess, Deep Blue, or Watson and Jeopardy, uh, will instantaneously have uh, some kind of response around like, well, you know, they, they just made a big fat computer, and it's not really smart it's just blankety blank blank, and and to be honest, I'm not I'm not um uh, enough of a uh, uh, a nuanced you know schooled individual in the domain of AI to to determine when to call a machine smart or not. Watson would appear smart at least to me, at least on some level, at least it would seem smarter than computers uh, that came before it. Um, but uh, but uh, your notion of sort of taking it for granted after it's been done, I think, is common. I think that's human nature in some way. You know, cars. Uh, were a very big deal at some point. Uh, you know, books were a very big deal at some point. But you know, if, when you're born into it, or when they've been around for a while, you sort of stop caring. Um, when it or stop noticing at least. Um, when it comes to the underpinnings of AI, I know uh, a decent portion of your book at least talked to some degree about the algorithms that underpin AI and sort of how AI functions. Um, are, are there some simple tenets and principles of sort of what's going on inside a machine when it's performing what we might call, you know, uh, uh, um, some kind of functions that relate to what you might refer to as artificial intelligence. Um, how, how would you describe some of those algorithms or what's really going on in there if we can make it layperson friendly? Yeah, sure. I mean, that was actually the whole point of, of this particular book was to try and take some of the nuggets uh, of really cool computer science algorithms that people are using every day without even realizing it, and just to try and explain those in terms that anyone could understand, even uh, people without a background in computer science. So in artificial intelligence, um, one of the tricks that we often use is um, when we're trying to classify something, for example, uh, face recognition as a classification problem where you're given a, a picture of someone and you want to classify it as this person A or person B or so on. Um, handwriting recognition is a classification problem where you're given an image of some writing and you want to classify it as, as a particular piece of text. And it turns out there's an amazingly simple trick um, that is used in the artificial intelligence literature called the nearest neighbor algorithm, and that is you start off with a big database of the things you're trying to classify, and one simple example would be handwritten digits yes. um, for recognizing postcodes um, on U.S. mail. Um, you can have thousands and thousands of handwritten digits, uh, each one manually classified by a human saying, this picture is a seven, this picture is a nine. <laughs> and then when um, the system is given a new picture of a digit that hasn't yet been classified, um, it just looks at that picture and says, okay, what is the single most similar picture in my database? It goes through the entire database, which could consist of, of millions of um, uh, labeled handwritten digits, finds the one picture that's most similar and says, okay, 
this most similar one was classified as a seven by a human, so I'm going to guess that this new picture you've given me is also a seven. That's it. That's the whole nearest neighbor. We call it nearest neighbor, by the way, because we take the, the new example that we're trying to automatically classify and find uh, it's the neighbor that's nearest to it in our database of, um, of pre-classified information. And uh, this amazingly simple trick actually works surprisingly well on a wide variety of pattern recognition tasks. It's, you know, uh, people, of course, are publishing um, clever uh, classification algorithms all the time that improve on nearest neighbor, but it, it provides a surprisingly um, high level of performance on a wide range of tasks. And now, I'm, I'm, uh, although I send a lot out in the mail for one of our businesses, I'm uh, wholly unaware of what happens after those envelopes get dropped off behind that counter with those grumpy people. Um, are they actually using uh, some degree of, of uh, machine learning uh, algorithm to, to, to scan all of those? Is there a guy back there that's putting them in with their different zip codes? Or at this point, is U.S. Mail, and it wouldn't surprise me at all, but I have no idea, is U.S. Mail basically scanning all envelopes in that exact fashion? Um, I believe that the majority of U.S. letters are, uh, the postcode part of the address is automatically recognized, but I'm not an expert on that, so Got don't it. quote me on okay. it. It's certainly, <laughs> there are systems that can do that with, uh, with a, a pretty high degree of reliability. Cool, you know, that wouldn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I just have no idea what happens in those, in those back rooms. Any, any other little, um, any other laminable functions in the AI space that we could articulate and run through? Um, so another really simple one is a technique that researchers call a decision tree. Um, and this is pretty similar to a game of 20 questions. If I was to think of, um, think of an object and give you a chance to ask 20 yes-no questions about it, very often, you know, this is a kid's game that people play, and very often you're able to home in on that object in less than 20 questions. Uh, now, computers given a bunch of, of training data, such as the labeled data set I was talking about before, yeah. where we have a bunch of pictures of, of, of numbers and, and they're labeled as what number they actually represent, computers can come up with a similar strategy, basically a list of 20 questions that they're going to ask about any new image that comes in, saying, is there a line here? Is there a dot there? Is there a curve over here? That kind of thing. Just yes-no questions, and it turns out that, um, again, with a surprisingly simple list of questions, you can actually get a very high degree of accuracy on many different types of recognition problems using this approach. So that's what researchers call a decision tree. And again, it's, it's something that is actually understandable to someone without a background in computer science and is actually used every day. Many of the, the uh, AI systems that, that you're using without realizing it have decision trees built into them. Yeah, give, me, give me an idea, uh, John, of, of some, some basic... Uh, functions of the technology around us that we're likely using every day that is using a decision tree? You know, how, how does the decision tree make its way into what I do on my cell phone, maybe what I'm doing on my computer today, um, sure. just so I get a tangible yeah. I understanding? Mean, probably the easiest example would be a medical diagnosis system. Now, doctors typically don't use these as a completely automated of system. Course. What they do is they, they use it to assist with uh, their own human expertise in interpreting a diagnosis. But the decision tree would take a whole battery of medical tests of your blood pressure and various other tests and say, okay, if the pressure was above this and below this, um, then um, ask the next question. Was the uh, white blood cell count above this and below this? If not, um, ask the next question, and so on. And with a list of maybe seven or eight questions, 
um, they'll come down to a diagnosis of, you know, this is likely the cause of the problem, and the doctor can then look at it and, you know, decide uh, for themselves if that's a, that's a reasonable um, estimate or not. So that's that's the sort of classical example of a decision tree where it's very obvious what kinds of yes/no questions yeah. you want to ask. However, they can be applied in much more bizarre situations. For example, you might know about Microsoft's Connect sensor that they sell as an attachment to the Xbox, and it can yeah. sort of follow you as you move and get your whole, um, you know, the configuration of your body, and you can use that to play computer games and so on. Yep. Well, at the base of that recognition algorithm is a decision tree. It's asking all sorts of bizarre questions about the pixels in the image that are coming in to uh, the Kinect sensor. It's saying, is there a pixel that um, looks like you know, a piece of human skin over here, yes or no? Is there a pixel that is over here, yes or no? And even though it sounds like this could never work, it actually does. Uh, the people at Microsoft Research built a system based on decision trees that is able to classify human and recognize human poses um, in real time, and it works well enough to play computer games and to, to uh, you know, be used as a, as a form of, um, of an interface with the computer as well. Huh. And, and so, John, just to get a, an idea, are, is a lot of what we would call AI um, and, and the functions thereof, is a lot of that, and again, I'm, I'm not uh, enough of a uh, uh, direct student to say, oh, well, you know, technically that would just be computer science, not artificial intelligence. I don't personally draw those lines, but we're, we're talking about that with you. Um, is a lot of what is deeper and farther in AI, such as, you know, the Watsons of the world or, you know, Amazon's suggestions and, and whatever else, is a lot of that uh, basically extensions off of these more simple tenets, the nearest neighbor idea, the decision tree idea? Are these just more nuanced, more built on, uh, oftentimes kind of more robust models of some of these very basic AI algorithms? Well, it depends. I mean, there are other types of um, algorithms used in artificial intelligence which don't boil down to some simple nugget that could be explained to someone without the necessary mathematical background. So these two examples that I've given you today, nearest neighbor and uh, decision trees, or the 20 questions if you want to think of it that way, these happen to be two of the algorithms that do work well in practice and can be explained relatively easily. But I don't want to give you the impression that all oh, yeah, artificial sure, intelligence yeah. is like that. There are, there are other approaches, um, including things with fancy names like support vector machine, and, um, you know, deep belief network, Bayesian network, all of these other things, um, you know, are based on more sophisticated mathematical models. Got it. Um, but it, but uh, at least some functions of artificial intelligence are, are built off of more robust forms of some of the fundamentals you've articulated here in plain English. Yes, absolutely. Got That's it. Correct. Okay, understood. Um, next question on my end, John. Uh, you know, we've seen the development of artificial intelligence, as you had mentioned, uh, the initial aspirations of AI. I, I, I forget where I heard it, and I don't know if it was Minsky himself at the 2045 conference a couple of years ago when he kind of, um, uh, he, he was projected in because I think he was sick, um, but had, had mentioned that, that some folks really don't even like to, to say artificial intelligence and sort of prefer machine learning now because AI got such a bad rap for maybe being a little bit more ambitious and feeling like it was in, you know, the, the AI winter for however many decades. Uh, again, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there myself, but at least this is what I'm told. Uh, but we still have seen, nonetheless, uh, you know, Amazon recommends me pretty good books, and my, my uh, chess machine here on my Macintosh 
can can beat the crud out of me if it really wants to. Uh, and Watson can uh, can can sure smoke out uh, you know the smartest quote unquote humans at the game of Jeopardy uh, in in the game of Jeopardy itself. AI clearly has some degree of a trajectory. It's 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 found its way to be useful. It's found its way to be novel. Where do you think, John, in the next maybe five or ten years, where do you see AI applying itself in ways that we're more familiar? You know, for me, Watson comes to mind. Amazon recommending me books comes to mind. My chess computer's pretty fun sometimes. Um, what in the next ten to you know five years or so uh, will I maybe be more aware of? Will AI sort of penetrate the uh, the 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 day to day lives or, or day to day business lives of uh, of of you know people in the first world? Yeah, uh, I think that really, I mean, new algorithms are coming out all the time and performance sure. on existing problems is improving as well. One of the ones where we've seen pretty consistent improvement over the last few years is in translation of human languages. So Google Translate and various other systems out there, as you know, you can paste in um, a box of, of text in French and get it translated into English or vice versa. And some of that works okay, some of it is still not very impressive, um, at least in terms of the, the quality of the final results. But that's been just consistently improving, and I believe it's going to continue to improve, and we're, we're going to see high-quality translations between human languages emerging. I'm not going to give a number of years, because then I'll yeah, just be no, guaranteed to be wrong. But, yeah. you know, I think, I think that's doable in, in the medium term. Got and it. then another one that we've seen uh, gets quite a lot of publicity is self-driving cars. Yeah. They are really starting to emerge, and it's starting to seem like, you know, that's, that could be a, a reality for um, everyday use, again, in the medium term. And, you know, this is something that a few years ago we really would have said, hmm, no, that, that's going to take a major breakthrough uh, to get the self-driving cars working. And what we've seen is just by... Um, making incremental improvements, uh, we're actually getting close to the point where, where those are a reality too. Got it. Okay. Um, and, and how do you feel about um, uh, machine vision? So obviously cars involve you know, a decent amount of visual sensors um, and, and you know, recognition of cats versus dogs. Uh, do, do, you, do you see that in the computer world, in the AI world? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. Now, so the subfield of AI where we try to emulate the human visual system and do things that sound simple like recognizing objects or following them around if they're moving in a video, um, this subfield has turned out to be one of the toughest nuts to crack in the whole um, field of AI. Whoa. And um, again, there have been amazing improvements in the last few decades. Uh, object recognition systems today compared to what they were 20 years ago are phenomenally good, but still um, far, far inferior to uh, the capabilities of a human. So what you actually find is because vision has been that hard nut to crack, real AI systems try not to rely on it. And if you actually went in and looked at how, um, say, Google's uh, latest model of self-driving car actually works, what you're going to find is the vision systems are there, but they don't depend on them. They might be for something very simple like recognizing whether a traffic light is either red or green. That's something that a computer can do reliably. But in terms of recognizing where are the lane markings on the road, you know, where are the obstructions, they're going to rely on other sorts of sensors that are more reliable, including GPS to get an exact location and you know, their own built-in maps 
maps, they know where the road's meant to be uh, because it's been mapped out in advance. So what they do is whenever it's possible to do something without using vision, they'll tend to do that. And then when vision's the only way of doing it, they'll, they'll try and make a robust system that works. But it's, history has shown that that's generally tougher than you might think. Well, interesting. Okay, so it's, it's curious to see sort of uh, what's, what is more or less fruitful. And as, as you seem to articulate it there, it sounds like it's not exactly easy to predict. You know, we might have predicted, oh, by golly, you know, recognizing cats and dogs and following them around. That's nothing compared to having a car that drives with other cars and doesn't need people behind the wheel. But, oh, shucks, uh, it turns out it sounds like it's the other way around, at least in some sense. Yes, I would say that's correct. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Um, so uh, so uh, translation of human languages and uh, self-driving cars being, being domains where AI might step into the fore in, in the, the midterm in your eyes in terms of where AI might, might show up in a more meaningful sense than on my Amazon uh, screen when I log in. So um, my final question to you, John, is, you know, as of late, and uh, again, I, I've my, my purpose here on Tech Emergence is really bringing to the fore a well-intended, open-minded, and interdisciplinary conversation about emerging technology and ethics. Really, that's what I'm about. So I'm, uh, I'm not a techno-pessimist. I don't quite identify as a techno-optimist. I'm just interested in perspectives, and I think the more informed everybody is, hopefully, the, the better decisions we'll all be able to make. You know, I know, I know Elon Musk and, uh, and Hawking uh, recently had, had made some statements about artificial intelligence and sort of their trepidations and fears about some of the future of AI and what it might do and, and where it might go. Um, in, in your eyes, I mean, being somebody that, that hones in on this area, do you see some of these fears as, as sort of wholly un, ungrounded and unfounded, at least as of now? Are these serious concerns in, in, in your eyes? How, how might the layperson or somebody who's interested in emerging tech consider the ethical ramifications and maybe the potential dangers of AI, at least in your perspective? Yeah, um, the truth is I'm an unapologetic optimist on this question. I don't think that artificial intelligences are going to sort of uh, get out of control of humans and start doing evil things on their own. I think that um, as we get closer and closer to systems that, that rival humans in, in certain capabilities, including you know, what we now think of as creativity yep. and um, you know, original thought, um, there'll still be systems that, that humans have designed and have, have methods of controlling and for me, I, I like to take the optimistic view that we'll be able to continue building these things and making them into useful tools that are not the same as humans but have, have extraordinary capabilities in, in one direction or another and that, that we can guide them and control them and use them for positive benefit. I think that um, people like Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking are technically correct it's not, um, I don't think it is a complete science fiction scenario that uh, an artificially intelligent entity could um, sort of, uh, I don't know, lead to evil consequences through getting out of control. But I, I think that it's, a, it's an unlikely scenario that humans will be able to continue to craft and control these types of entities as they design them. And I know there's organizations like the Machine... Uh the Machine Intelligence Research Institute and, and other folks like that out, out in California and, and other groups along those lines that are aiming to sort of understand what, what sort of safeguards and what, what ways of developing AI might we want to have in place uh, as the technology starts to move forward 
do you think it's important to consider those? You know, you, you have an optimistic view and believe that AI will uh, be more of a tool and won't necessarily get out of hand, or, or you don't believe so. Um, do you think that we should have uh, research protocols nationally, internationally, otherwise, that maybe guide our research in developing AI along the lines of the friendly kind that you were referring to? Um, yes, uh, of course. It's important, and all sorts of people need to be thinking about this, you know, from philosophers, social scientists, and the technologists and the computer scientists. Uh, everyone needs to be thinking about it and cooperating and uh, making sure that we move in the right direction. And, you know, one particular subfield of this where it's obvious that, that needs to be done is in the area of military robotics. Yeah. Um, as we become capable of building systems that could be somewhat or completely autonomous and be used um, for lethal force in military conflicts, then the entire scenario of ethics and uh, what what kinds of things could and could should and should not be done, um, really, uh, you know, that, that really changes. And I know the UN has has people looking at this, and many other people are also thinking about the implications in the in the military sphere. And that's just that's just one example. So yes, absolutely, uh, we need to be thinking about this and trying to trying to formulate uh, the correct ways of using autonomous systems. Big time, and and. Hopefully, John, uh, you know, what I aim to do in terms of bringing conversations like this to the fore is, is facilitating that thought, uh, not necessarily guiding it in one inherent direction or another, but, but encouraging folks to tune in. I certainly hope there's, there's uh, I mean, we've had philosophers on the show, psychology folks on the show, people with deep technical backgrounds and AI and gen tech and uh, uh, neuroscience, etc., and, uh, man, the more of us are on board in, in ensuring that that future is a good one, hopefully the better future we'll have. And on that note, John, I want to thank you for being able to share your thoughts on the future as well as the, some, some easy-to-grasp concepts about artificial intelligence here on the podcast. If people want to learn more from you, whether it's from your books or some of the research that you have going on in the computer science and AI space, where would they uh, find you on the web? Uh, they can just Google my name, John McCormick, and you'll get there pretty quickly. All right, very good. Easy enough. So the name will be on the podcast, folks. If you're listening to it, just look at it. Spelled out pretty easy. Uh, Nine Algorithms That Changed the Future is the name of the book. John McCormick, thank you so much for being here on the Tech Emergence Podcast. Thanks. It's been a great pleasure to be on the podcast. Hey, thanks for tuning in, guys. If you're an entrepreneur or a future thinker uh, with an interest in businesses, transitions, or technologies that have the potential to alter human potential, then make sure you check out techemergence.com. It's our main blog site where you can see all of our other interviews with uh, top startup leaders, uh, entrepreneurship experts, and folks in the domain of technology, cutting-edge emerging technology. Uh, if you have a particular interest in how technology can affect the future of human consciousness and our conscious experience, and be sure to also check out sentientpotential.com. There we explore a lot of the ethical considerations and really serious moral matters of emerging technologies, in addition to interviews with great philosophers and technology experts of our day. Uh, more than anything else, always feel free to reach out if you can find us via email. Um, you can reach out to us there or whatever other way. Find us on the blog. Be sure to drop comments. We believe that the serious uh, conversation about the future is not only open-minded, but also interdisciplinary and multifaceted. So we'd like nothing more than to be able to glean your ideas as well. Um, so with that being said, with the best of intentions for a brilliant future, this is Dan Fagella signing off. And we'll see you next week.